Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Esther Wojcicki to the Mind Body Green podcast. Esther is a journalist and teacher, and she knows a thing or two about raising successful women. Her three daughters are all highly accomplished. Susan is the CEO of YouTube, Anne is a co-founder and CEO of 23andMe, and Janet has a PhD and a master's in public health and is an assistant professor at UCSF. You may also remember her from our Revitalize event in 2015. In Esther's new book, How to Raise Successful People, she encourages having open communication with your kids, letting them make their own choices, and fostering radical independence. Her out-of-the-box approach to nurturing children pushes conventional ideas of parents. And as a mother of two young daughters, this is the most excited I've been about a podcast in a while. Esther, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So Esther is the author of one of my favorite books, How to Raise Successful People. Um, and this book isn't about how to raise a CEO or an entrepreneur or a scientist. It's about helping our children live good lives. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about successful people? Oh, so successful people are people that have good relationships, both in their home and their work and their life. And But that's not all who are passionate about the work they're doing in the world at least 51% of the time. <laughs> because all jobs have some part of them that you don't really like. Agreed. And you go through the principles in your book that are very valuable for people who are parents and also for executives. So if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have children, this is still relevant leadership advice. Um, I know you've done some speaking engagements with folks like John Mackey at the Conscious Capitalism event. Uh, can you give us the cliff notes on the TRIC principles? So TRIC stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And it's those five components that I think really make a big difference in how you get along in the world, both in the classroom and as parent and in, in business. And it's it sounds really simple, and it is actually simple, but it took me a long time to come up with it. So let's go through them each um, one by one. Um, let's start with trust. When you trust yourself and you trust your child, then basically what you're giving your child is an opportunity to trust themselves. Because they are, they look up to you no matter what you think. Kids want to please their parents, even yeah. though they seem like they're, <laughs> in many situations, not very interested in doing that, but they are really interested in doing it. And so when you trust and believe in your kid, they they kind of 
they are like peacocks. They kind of <laughs> rise, and they're really excited about it. And then they say to themselves, well, I can do it. I'm sure you've heard kids say, well, I can do it now. Yeah. And they can do it. But you want them to have this sense of, I can control my environment. I can do it as much as possible. Because as they grow up, that's basically what you want them to do, is to feel comfortable in their environment or comfortable in any situation that they get themselves into. Because life is full of unpredictable situations. You want them to be able to think. So we have a huge role in shaping our kids' self-image of themselves. That's right. They're so the most important thing you can give your child is a positive self-image about themselves. I don't care about you know colors and can they multiply or can they do they know their alphabet? Nope, doesn't matter. Because what you want is somebody who is comfortable in their own skin, feels comfortable about doing things themselves. And I can tell you, you know, as an instructional supervisor for English in Palo Alto for many years, and one of the things I looked for when I was hiring teachers was not how much grammar they knew <laughs> or what their grade point average was in college or, like, did they know what the great Gatsby was and all those things. It was, like, their character how well did they relate to kids? Right. Because I could teach them all the rest, right. but I could not change their character. And what about respect? Respect, it's part of trust also. They're correlated. So respecting somebody's ideas. You might not agree, and frequently I don't agree you know, with what my children say or what my students say, but you know, they have the right to propose those ideas. And we have the right to collaborate. That's what I do. So if they, and also my co-teacher, I have a co-teacher in this class we teach. It's advanced journalism. And we have we have a lot of journalism students, by the way. We have hundreds, and there's seven teachers. But this one, Rod Satterwaite, he is my co-teacher in the class called the Campanile. And they have 60 kids in the class. And um, those kids are very empowered, and we listen to their ideas. And I can tell you, sometimes those ideas make you raise your eyebrows <laughs> so high that you're like, oh, my God, is that really going to happen? But let me tell you, some of their ideas that I might not have ever thought of are turn out to be amazing. So I think we need to give our kids an opportunity to come up with ideas, respect them, respect their right to think independently. Which leads to independence. Yes, it leads to independence. So independence and collaboration are the ways that you respect these kids or respect your children or respect your spouse because you trust them and you respect them. You give them in order to get trust and respect. You give them independence and you collaborate with them. You, when you collaborate with someone, you're respecting them. You're respecting their ideas and their ways of doing whatever it is you're doing. And collaboration is how we get things done. Nobody can do something by themselves. I mean, I guess you can do play solitaire by yourself. Um, you can do you can knit something by yourself, but you're right. usually knitting for someone. But normally, most activities, most human activities are interactive and collaboration is one of the best ways to succeed. 
I thought the examples you had in the book of the Alice and Olivia founder who was concerned that we're creating a generation of people who can't function independently in the workforce was really interesting. Yes, she's a great person, uh, Stacy Benedet, and she does, is the founder of Alice and Olivier, which is a amazing store. Yeah. And she's incredibly creative. And what she was trying to do is hire some people that were also willing to take risks and willing to be creative and willing to... Um, you know, to contribute to what she's trying to do. And she's not the only one. She was just one CEO that I interviewed. There were a whole group of CEOs. They all said the same thing, and they didn't know each other. (laughs) And they all said, we're having a really hard time finding students graduating from college who are willing to take a risk. Right. They weren't, they're not willing to take a risk. They're so used to getting everything right. And what we're training students to do is to get it right, to do it all correctly. And so when they go out into the business world, they're like, is it right? Am I doing it correctly? (laughs) You know, is there going to be a multiple choice test at the end of this? (laughs) Where's my (laughs) scantron? Because that's what I'm really good at. I'm great at taking multiple choice tests. So we need to change the way we're teaching. Now, I know the system takes a lot. Of, it's hard to change a whole system. So what I'm just suggesting is just doing it 20% of the time. So 80% of the time, we continue to teach the same way, memorization, lecture, whatever. But 20% of the time, you give kids an opportunity to work on projects that they control, projects that they conceptualize, projects that are done in school with the support of the school. Because why not out of school? A lot of stuff is done out of school right now. The reason I say in school is because there's a lot of kids that have to go home right after school. Sure. And if that is one of the situations, maybe you have to have a job or you have to help your parents or whatever, you don't want to miss out on that opportunity. Right. You So all kids should have this opportunity in school and be supported by the school and by the curriculum. And you've talked a little bit about the last two values, collaboration and kindness, but can we dive into those a little bit more? Right. So collaboration, one of the things parents can do is they can do collaborative parenting with their kids. So if we'll talk about like what time it is appropriate for you to go to bed, and you can talk to them, give them some examples. What age can you have that conversation? You can have that conversation with them actually pretty young, four, five years old. You know, you can show them You know, little kids, your brain grows when you sleep, and you get smarter when you are sleeping. So while it doesn't sound like that, that's what's happening. So you need to, you can't just force kids all the, well, people are forcing them, but that doesn't work. You want to talk to them about why. The why is important. And they then you want them to self-regulate. It's time to go to sleep. You know, when you say it's time to go to sleep, hopefully they'll agree with you. And, um, you know, because there are whole books about parenting, and they're devoted to how to get your kid to go to sleep. I'm not kidding. Oh, I'm very familiar with sleep books. (laughs) Sleep, toilet training, that's the other main one. Yeah. And um, so, you know, by the way, they'll all be toilet trained. I can tell you that's (laughs) not a topic for cocktail conversation. It's like... How old were you when you were on the train? <laughs> so um, I think we all need to just relax a little bit. And our kids are going to be really just fine. Um, and collaboration obviously is important as a family in a classroom, but 
manifests itself later in life in the workplace. Well, you want to collaborate with your spouse. Yeah. And you want to set that role model for them. You want to collaborate with your kids. Like, what are we doing this weekend? Most of the time, kids are just taken on trips. And they're not told where you're going. It's like, get in the car, it's Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, how about having them help plan the trip, you know? That's one of the ways you can use technology intelligently. You figure out where we're going to go. What are we going to do when we get there? Right. Look it up on the web. How long will it take us to get there? What's the best route for getting there? All those things. Where should we have lunch? Which one which one place is better, you know? Look up the reviews. Kids can do that. Right. And we don't we don't ask them to do that. We don't let them do that. Right. But we should. And then they'll feel like collaborators, and then they won't stop, you know, whining in the car. So I think the most important one, kindness. Kindness is really the most important one. And there is not a religion in the world that doesn't preach kindness. Right. Every single one. And we somehow have forgotten. I mean, we all talk about, you know, what good people we are. But then we forget how important it is to be kind. That means... I mean, you can be kind just by smiling at somebody. Or, but to, you know, how are you doing today? Just little things can make a difference. But then if your neighbor's having problems, you know, you can be help. And people are, they're unfortunately afraid of each other, or they, they don't say the things that, the, or they don't support each other in ways that I think that they could. But especially in the schools. So the schools, since I'm a teacher, of course, I think about this all the time. I think one of the things you can do to be kind is when a student doesn't do well on a paper or doesn't do well on a test, give them an opportunity to revise. Because I'll tell you, they will just, they'll do it right away. Right. And um, I wish that that would be built into the system. And one of the groups that I've been working with was called Mastery Connect. It was um, a group that encourages mastery as opposed to just doing it once. Hmm. And now it's part of another group called Infrastructure. And they are doing a great job. And I'd like to see schools in general and teachers in general think about how can you master this, not just get a grade and then move to the next thing even though you don't know what you're doing. Let's work on the mastery. So one of the ways that I grade essays, for example, I edit them, return them, and then there's marks on them, but there's no grade. <laughs> and that's the first thing they do is like take a look at it. It's like, where's grade? Where's grade? Well, so like, confused. Yeah, there's no grade. <laughs> My God. I was like, you just edit it. Fix it. You would learn from your mistakes. That's the kind of mistakes that you learn from. That's what school is all about. And so then you might have to do it again, or right. maybe even again, until you get it right. And then guess what? You'll probably get an A. <laughs> so then takes the grade pressure off. Then that's how you learn. You learn because you make mistakes, and you do it again. And, and how do you get children to give a damn, to care? They care when they think that they've got a chance to do something that is going to either make them feel good about themselves or proud, their parents proud, or something that they really care about. You know, you, I mean, for example, one of my daughter's friends was became super interested in ants. I am not. I wish I'd be kidding, but I'm not. And <laughs> she's she was plotting all that, like following ants around and things like that. Most parents would like nix that, right? It's like this is not a good idea. Anyway, she grew up to be a scientist, and she studies ant populations. So you know, you want to 
let your child pursue things that they might be interested in without you projecting on them. Because what we do is project our fears and our likes and our dislikes on our children. But actually, that's why the book is How to Raise Successful People, because they're people when they're born. And they have, they come, you know, with, it's the nature versus nurture. So with the nature part, they have already built in ideas. You want to nurture them also, because there's ways to, you know, give them other opportunities. But they all have their individual likes and dislikes, and it's our role as parents to nurture that and to give them an opportunity to flower. So let's talk about those early years. You have a theory that the most important years are from zero to five. Talk to me about this. Yes, zero to five. You know that baby that's lying there uh, looking like it doesn't know what it's doing? I'll tell you, it's taking in a lot of data. (laughs) It's figuring out what you want and what you said and what you like early on. All the scientific research shows that by the age of five, 85% of your brain is already developed. Wow. And so the habits that you instill early are the habits that they're going to keep. So if whatever they cry, you give them a cell phone to look at the cell phone, guess what? When they're older, that's exactly what they're going to want to do all the time too because you trained them that when you're bored... That's what you do is check out your cell phone. Right. So I don't recommend cell phones for any kids under two and then very limited from two to five. And like I said, it doesn't matter if they know their alphabet or their colors or anything else. What you want them to know is how to get along with each other and how to feel good about themselves. So there's definite ways to use a cell phone that are, I I think they're great. And what I'm, are those ways that are okay in your book? Well, let me tell you, there's a whole website devoted to which ways are good, and it's called commonsensemedia.com. And I recommend all parents go there because they rank all the apps, hmm. all the movies, everything electronic, it's all ranked. And you can see what the reviews are and whether or not, what age it's appropriate for. And so there's lots of things that you can have your kid do. I mean, one of the best um, games for kids is really, uh, well, I love Lego, right? Yeah. For kids, I think it's perfect. But if you want to have an electronic game that they're going to do in the car or something, they can do Minecraft. It's kind of Lego in online. Huh. So, And Minecraft was ranked one of the best games for kids, you know, over five. So go to Common Sense Media. See what you personally think is a good thing for them to do. But I wouldn't let them watch these silly videos that just show repetition, or I wouldn't let them watch watch things that are meaningless unless they're watching it with you. Right. Because then, you know, some of those kitty cat videos or dog videos, they're pretty funny. <laughs> as long as you laugh together with them, as long as it's a a fun thing that you're doing together. I think that's a different story or that they're doing with a friend because it's all relationships. You're trying to teach them how to have relationships in the world. And how do you help them at this young age have relationships with their peers? Well, one of the main things is, you know, learning how to share. Yep. And learning how to share happens when you're actually doing it, not when you're being lectured to by someone. Right. So they have to learn how to share. 
So if they're fighting about something, whatever it is, then I would stop whatever they're doing and talk to them about sharing and what they need to learn how to do. And then I would let them work it out, how you're going to share with supervision. Because sometimes even when you're talking to them, you know, and they're two and a half years old, <laughs> and it's, they won't share anything, <laughs> they do need some help and some supervision. But what you're doing is laying the foundation. You're planting the seeds of this is how we get along in the world. And it takes time for them to learn it, but they will learn it. But if you do it all for them, then what are you telling them? It's like, well, you can't do it by yourself. Mommy or daddy has to do it for you. Right. And you want them to be able to work these things out themselves if possible, as much as possible. So during the, these early years, you like to treat children like adults. What does that mean didn't, in practice well, in terms I'm, of how you talk to your children? Well, I didn't use a lot of baby talk. <laughs> I actually talked to them. And what I think it was kind of funny is that research shows today that that's a good idea. And I, I just, I never could get into the baby talk thing. That maybe that was just me. So when we were going to the store, it was first with Susan, then Janet, then Anne, and all three of them in the shopping cart at the same time. They helped me make decisions about what to buy. And I would talk to them, you know, what do you want to have? What kind of fruit would you like to have this week? Let's pick the fruit. And then how do you pick a good orange or a good apple? Because you have to pick them, right? And what age can you start this type of oh, conversation? Oh, three years old. Yes. When they're really little. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's kind of funny. Most kids who are five years old, most five-year-olds are really quite capable of doing a lot of things. And we, we project onto them ideas that they are not capable. So when they feel incapable themselves, then they rise to exactly those expectations. They, which are, if I, you think they can't do it, then they won't do it. Right. So the expectations are important. And I think that parents need to have high expectations. If they fail, then okay, well, we'll just do it again. Right. You know, and um, it's not a big deal. Nobody's getting, you know, there's nobody getting hurt. You know, nobody's losing money. <laughs> it's just, you know, that's the way little kids are. And going back to this theme of, of kindness, how do we get children to focus on people outside of just themselves? Through stories. There's a lot of stories out there. Um, that That's another thing that they can watch, but I don't recommend watching a lot, you know, videos that show kindness talking about kindness, but also showing kindness yourself, showing kindness to them, showing kindness to their siblings or their friends. Kids do what they see you do. and They are um, your mirror. Right. And I actually realized that when I saw my students, when they peer edit or when they do things together in class, I first saw this maybe 25 years ago, that, that I was like, well, oh, they just, they all sound like me. I just like, what, where did they get that? It turned, it's subconscious. It's not like this, oh, today I'm going to talk like the teacher talks. No, they don't do that. It's a subconscious thing. And that, the all the peer editing, the peer work, they're all respecting each other because if the teacher respects one student, she respects multiple students, and then they all follow that pattern. 
It's so important. So moving from the early years to middle school, uh, there's a mental health crisis that is affecting all Americans, um, not all Americans, but many Americans, and it seems like it's affecting teenagers in a really big way. You talk in your book about how there's an estimated 32% of 13 to 18-year-olds in the U.S. have suffered from anxiety disorders. What is driving this epidemic? Comparison. People are comparing themselves to others. They're looking, especially girls, on social media. It's particularly acute. Particularly acute. They're like, oh, you know, I'm not as cute. I don't have the same clothes. Oh, everybody else looks like they're having more fun. Um, So they need to stop comparing themselves because you just have to ask yourself, does anybody take a selfie when they're having a bad time? (laughs) No. So they might be having a bad time, but they're only going to take pictures of themselves having good times. It gives you the impression that everybody else is having a wonderful time and you're the only one out there suffering. And, you know, all these young girls, I tell them, actually in my class, you know, they are beautiful. They don't realize how beautiful they are because they're they, they're just young girls. They're focusing on one thing. It's like, oh, you know, my ears are funny or, you know, I have a pimple here or, you know, I don't like my nose. or <laughs> some, You know, I'm telling you, they are all really, and, and I've seen them all over the country. It's not like... Right. You know, some girls are not, you know, better than others. They're really all, really, it's a special age, 13 to 20. Beautiful. Such a hard time. And then adding in social media is... is They just need to get some perspective. I would love to have, that's what one of my goals is to see what we can do to give kids some perspective in class about social media and its impact. Media literacy I've been working with, um, it's called the museum in Washington, D.C., and they have a lot of uh, lessons online. There's multiple websites that have resources for teachers. The New Literacy Project is another one, and the New York Times has resources. I'd like to put those together in a package for teachers to help all kids learn media, media ethics, how to navigate the web, how to realize that, you know, you alone are not the only one who thinks that everybody else is having a better time than you are. Right. And I imagine with your students, a social media detox isn't realistic, but is there a recommendation around social media minimalism where they're spending less time on their screens? or? Well, what I do, I use social media as a way for kids to learn. So when you teach that skill and you're looking up information and you're doing things that are educational with your phone or your computer or whatever, when kids learn how effective that is, it is, they tend not to play all these ridiculous games and tend not to spend all their time on Instagram. Um, And also, if you just talk about it, the perspective of knowing what is really going on in social media, knowing what the fake news situation <laughs> is all about, understanding that, that's why I'm proposing all kids everywhere have media literacy class. And it could be a media literacy, you know, four weeks put into a social studies class or into an English class where 
how do you consume media literacy today? What are some of the problems that we have? And we don't, where in the curriculum is this happening? Nowhere. It's, it's like we're all living in this age. It's like giving kids cars and saying, well, just start it over here and then just figure out how to drive figure it. Figure out how to drive it. We need to have a program yeah. where we're teaching all kids how to do this. And so a lot of the private schools have these programs. It needs to be in the public school. 95% of the kids go to public schools. Right. It's where it has the bigger impact. Yes. Well, they all need the same educational opportunities. Why not? And what do you see as the role of sports, particularly team sports, for girls and boys? So important. All kids should play sports. Why? They learn how to lose gracefully. They learn how to win and not be overly confident about it. They learn how to be part of a team, work together. I don't care what sport they do, but they should do a sport, you know, and soccer or basketball or I don't care, whatever it is. Even tennis. You can do a tennis team or a swim team. And so those are individual sports, but you can still be part of a team. It's so important for all kids everywhere. And um, I don't care if you live in a big city or what. One of the things that schools have gotten rid of when they're busy trying to teach more STEM is PE. That is a not a smart move. PE needs to be, well, PE should be, a, kids should take have an opportunity to take a sport. Yeah. That was such a formative part of my upbringing. Um, so you've had some distinct methods of education that weren't always embraced um, early on. Um, what do you think are some of the opportunities with the conventional systems of education? If you had a magic wand, what were some of the things, what are some of the things you change right now? I would change the testing system, number one. We're all teaching to the test, and it's very hard to change. That doesn't mean even in journalism everywhere. Ugh. So I, I definitely think we need a test. We it's kind of like you know you go to the doctor and he tells you whether you're overweight, sure. underweight, or whatever, but then you're not penalized, right? <laughs> like no, we're taking your food away. You're eating right. too much. No, we don't do that. <laughs> so with the test. The teachers are penalized when students don't read, reach a certain level, yeah. and it's humiliating. So it's okay to test kids and to see where they are and then to try to help them move ahead, but not to make it into a, a situation where you feel so terrible about it that you know you can't function any other way. And teachers, I think, starting in March whatever, March, April, May, they teach to the test. Because yeah. like the test happening in June, it's like, oh my God, we haven't done this and we haven't done that. And I was like, and the question is like, why are we doing this? And the teacher's answer is, well, because it's on the test. And well, but there has to be an answer. It has to be relevant to the real world. Right. Just memorizing. After two weeks of memorizing for a test that you took, you got an A. Two weeks later, you only remember 32%. If that. If that. And then a year later, it's 5%. Wow. So the question is, why memorize if it's not going to be somehow incorporated in how you think and what you're doing in the world and so forth? So that's how I would change it. Change the way that we use testing. And the second thing I would do is include more projects for kids, project-based learning. 
That's why I talked about the 20% time. Give kids an opportunity to work on projects for 20% of the time. And those projects can be, they can make an app. They can um, decide that they want to, you know, figure out a better gardening system. I mean, th- there's so many opportunities. I mean, I was just driving through New York City. I could see so many opportunities for things to be better. Yeah. And kids, they're so creative. We we need to appreciate their creativity and then give them an opportunity to participate and not just be told what to do all the time. And what other ways besides project-based learning can we inspire our kids to be more creative? One way is to let them be bored. Sorry. <laughs> boredom, boredom leads to creativity, and chaos also leads to creativity. So I would give them an opportunity to do more things that are, they have to come up with it. Don't buy all those plastic toys that have, you know, that you're then going to discard in a couple weeks. Give them an opportunity to create and come up with ideas. Boredom is one of the ways. And there's no more boredom. All the kids, you know, when they're up, if they're on the phone, then Monday it's swimming, and Tuesday <laughs> is tennis, and Wednesday every day is activities, so that you can put those all down on the college application, right? Right. And so that then your child is going to be like, somehow you think he's going to get into the college of his choice, which is not true, by the way. You know, honestly, it's not the college that matters, not exactly where you go, it's how you do at where you go. So if you're the best student at a state school, you're going to have more opportunities and feel better about yourself than if you're the worst student at an Ivy League. So grit and failure are are two parenting buzzwords I hear a lot about these days. Um, Grit and kids, should we teach our kids grit or are they skills they develop in life? That's actually a really good question because people will say, well, what can I do to have my kids have something that requires grit? (laughs) I'm not kidding. (laughs) What can I do? I'm sure you've seen it all in Palo Alto. (laughs) Yes, I have seen quite a bit. And so just think about this. When a child believes in themselves and believes that they can do it, so you're trusting them and you're believing them, they pick some project that they care about. I don't care what it is. You know, it can be knitting. I, I really doesn't matter. They will pursue that project with passion and grit until they get it done because they believe in themselves and they want to show you that they are right, that they can do it. So that leads to the grit. You cannot set up an artificial situation <laughs> to teach them grit. Don't drop them in the middle of the desert and then like come home. No, this is not <laughs> this is not legal anyway. <laughs> so, you know, you you want to give them opportunities to pursue their passion. I'm telling you, all those kids have something that they're passionate about. And it cannot be well, sometimes, I'm sorry to say, some of the kids have already like been hooked on the electronic stuff, so they're passionate about playing games on the web. It's hard for the parents because they've already established these habits. So one suggestion I have on that, 
And I came up with this. It's a collaborative idea that students actually helped me develop. For every hour you play games, you have to do an hour of coding for games. <laughs> you have to code a game yourself that you then can sell on the app store, one right. of the stores. They all like that. Or the other thing you can do is if you are really into all those games, you can, t and this is an assignment in my journalism class, you compare one game to another game, you have to write it up and post it on a blog. Hmm. And it works out really well. As a matter of fact, that is one of the most popular writing assignments. They all want to do it. And they're like, oh, can we do another game review? <laughs> <laughs> and so my hidden agenda is really, can you write? Right. But they forget about the agenda because they're so focused on the game. And another assignment I have that's super popular is restaurant reviews. I take them all to a restaurant. Sure. And then, no, it's not just writing about like your portion. You have to write about the atmosphere and the service and the parking and the hours and all that stuff. You have to notice what's going on. Why do people want to go to that restaurant and not the other restaurant? And, you know, they, they love going to restaurants, I can tell you. So with all this influx of technology, are you finding that you have better writers than you did 20 years ago in your classes? Oh, 100% better. Really? Oh, you should see the newspapers. By the way, the newspaper is thecampanile.org. Okay. Or Palo Alto High School new publications. We have about 10 magazines and one newspaper, television, radio, podcast that the kids do. And the newspaper and the magazines have won more gold crowns from Columbia than any other publications in, or any other high school, I should say, probably because we're the biggest in the country. But I'm so proud of them because they come up with their own ideas. Right. And they write stories about what they care about. And then they revise and revise and revise because that's built into the program. That's how you do it. And so the writing is fantastic. You should see the stuff that they do. I just suggest you check out Campanile, C-A-M-P-A-N-I-L-E dot org. I will. Um, and then moving on to failure. Um, I did laugh out loud at the anecdote of your book where a parent had asked you to engineer a failure. But how, <laughs> how do kids learn failure? Well, number one is sports. Right. And you, that's why you need to play a game, a sport, and be part of a team. It's because it's disappointing when you fail. Yeah. And the other thing is if you fail on a school assignment, actually the parent's response to that is very important. You did poorly. It's okay, just do it again. The idea is to learn it again. Don't be discouraged. You know, do it over again. So one of the things that adults need to do is to trust and respect themselves and forgive themselves. And so you build this into your child by doing this and teaching them that it's okay to fail, but let's see if you can't learn it. You know, my goal that's what I try to do in my classes. My goal is not your grade. My goal is, did you learn what I was trying to teach you? And your grade is secondary. It's a byproduct. You should automatically get an A once you learn the material. Well, it seems like there's so much anxiety right now over grades. Well, that's because you only get one shot at it. I'd be anxious too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you get one shot at that test, and it's like, oh, my God. That's what happened to those parents, the ones, the scandal. Yeah. 
Right, because they get one shot at the SAT, yeah. or you can take it multiple times, but you know, you really, it's really tough. Yeah. So they're like, well, I can't figure out how to, what I can do. So they unfortunately picked the cheating path, which is the last thing you want to che- teach your child to do. But and, and that anxiety gets passed down to their children. They don't even have to talk about it. It's you can feel it. Yeah. You know, we all have that sixth sense. I mean, as a teacher, I was a substitute for a few years when my children were small. I could walk into a classroom. I could tell you what the relationship was between the parent, the teacher, and the kids. Wow. In five minutes. If the were the parents in the room too? No, it was wow. just the teacher and the and the kids. So the parent, what's happening is that they're picking up a lot of nonverbal clues. Yeah. And those are really important. They pick those up from the parents. Um, they, You think they're not listening, right? They listen to everything. They overhear all those conversations you're whispering about. Be careful. Yeah. And then also, even if you don't say anything, just your facial movements and your behavior, your body, they, they can tell when you're disappointed. You can too. You totally. Know? I'm not, I'm, it's not a secret. My face is a transparent transmitter of every emotion I have. Right. I get it. I have no poker face. <laughs> <laughs> so it's. I think what we need to do is deep down inside, we have to say to ourselves, my child's going to be fine. Right. And I can tell you, I have met more CEOs who were terrible students who are the most creative people I know now. Right. So we just can relax a little bit. (laughs) And how does this parenting journey help make people better people? Well, because when they relax and they enjoy life more, they're better people, they're happier. And, you know, parenting should be fun. It's your opportunity to be silly again and relive your childhood through with your child. You know, yeah. you're crawling around on the floor, right? Otherwise, if you see an adult crawling around on the floor, you're a little like, what's going What's wrong? On? <laughs> <laughs> but if you have a baby there and you see it, well, then everybody understands. Yeah. So it gives you an opportunity to actually crawl around, to do fun things, to buy toys that you always wished you had when you were little, play games that you wished you had and you didn't have that opportunity. It gives. It's fun. So... It'll make you a better person because you're having more fun. When you're having more fun and you're happier, then you feel better and everybody around you feels better. What keeps you up at night? Well, the number one thing that keeps me up at night is the climate problem. Right. I think. And then every morning I put out a little newsletter on this thing called Nuzzle. And I I go through all the news stories and I pick 10 that I like. And usually at the end of that, I'm not feeling too good <laughs> because there's so many, there's a crisis here, you know, there's something in China or something, you know, probably that terrible thing that happened in New Zealand. I mean, there's always something. So it's, I think it's very hard in today's world that there's so much hatred and so much intolerance when we all, all religions preach kindness and tolerance every single one i don't care what the name of the religion is and somehow people forget that important principle even people that are so religious right can we all remember kindness it's so important 
I don't care what color your skin is or what you, language you speak first. It's all one big planet. And here in America, we're a nation of immigrants, and we all have to take care of each other. And that's what I worry about. Can we do that? And what gets you excited when you wake up in the morning? Well, I tend to, I, I kind of love life. And so what gets me excited, well, I love, I love my students. I love going to school. Um, I love my grandkids and my kids. I also, it's interesting, I, I love um, seeing things in the community that are, you know, making the world better. Um, I think the main thing, I, I have a Facebook group with my students. It's fun to see what they're thinking. <laughs> it's fun for me to see. I have students that are now 40 years old. <laughs> and so it's fun for me to follow what they're doing in the in the world. And then I get emails from them. So that's one of the number one advantages of the web is being able to be in touch with all these people who have been in my life. And I think it's great for everybody. So I've been around long enough, you know, I've been teaching for 37 years. And I can tell you that as a child, the main way that I kept in touch with family was writing letters. And that was pretty slow. And so I'm really grateful that we have this way, this opportunity to keep in touch. And if we could just get rid of some of the terrible problems that we have with social media and some of the bad things that have been happening with Facebook, that would be great. Hopefully, you know, I'm hopeful that they'll solve this. But so far, it doesn't seem... I mean, they need to work faster. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of smart people, I'm sure, working on it, but they need to work faster. Yeah. And what advice would you give to your younger self? My younger self. Well, you know, um, when I first started, there was a lot of discrimination against women because I was I was started as a journalist. I couldn't get into the San Francisco Press Club because they didn't allow women. Um, I was writing for a section called the women's section in the paper. So, to my younger self, I would have just persisted more. You know, it was very hard. Um, to persist in a world where I didn't even have a name. I, you know, when you got married, you were became Mrs. Mrs. Stanley Wojcicki. It's like, what happened to my name? And um, I did persist, but I could have, I could have done it better. And so today's world, I see things have progressed. It's much better. But what I would do is I'd persist, but I wouldn't get angry. So, because I think women have made a lot of progress, so much progress. I mean, I couldn't even get a credit card in my name. They didn't give credit cards to women. Wow. Um, So I know that sometimes I think the Me Too movement has gone a little far in some areas, but I'm so thrilled with the Me Too movement and what it's done to help women speak about things that have created a lot of problems for them, and I actually had a lot of issues also. Um, But I want them to, you know, I'd like to see more women in the boardroom. I'd like to see more women in positions of responsibility. I'd like to see more CEOs. And I think that they need to keep their eye on the ball and not let all this distractions that happen to women, let them, let, let it divert them from their main goal, which is really to be, 
in leadership roles. It's important for them to do that. I mean, they're role models. Every generation, they, it gets better and better. And so that's what I'd like to see happen. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Esther. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you for asking me great questions. <laughs> You're really great. <laughs> well, I loved your book. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you.